The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am A Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and activism is a huge part of our lives and who we are. We're constantly inspired by the incredible work people are doing every day all over the world. And then one day we realized something. Most of these people had no intention of becoming heroes. They're just accidental activists who knew something was not okay and chose to do something about it. In this podcast, we share the journeys of 20 of these dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with the incredible actress and activist Jane Fonda. In addition to her remarkable life as a global icon and activist for decades, Jane is the founder of Fire Drill Fridays and the author of What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action, urging us to wake up to the looming disaster of climate change and equipping us with the tools we need to join her in protest. As she said, this is the last possible moment in history when changing course can mean saving lives and species on an unimaginable scale. It's too late for moderation. Last fall, Jane Fonda decided to stop everything and take action to stop the climate crisis. Inspired by Greta Thunberg's call to act like, quote, our house is on fire, unquote, and guided by Naomi Klein's Green New Deal advocacy, Jane realized she was ready to do whatever it would take to stop the climate crisis. Responding to the urgency of this issue, she dropped all of her commitments and moved to D.C. to launch Fire Drill Fridays, which has since led thousands of people in nonviolent civil disobedience, risking arrest to demand Congress pass the Green New Deal. Jane is incredibly inspiring, kind, thoughtful, and just all-around powerful. Also, she is Jane Fonda! (laughs) And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, the one and only, holy shit, I can't believe I'm saying this, Jane Fonda, the climate crusader. Hello. Hey, hey, hi, everybody. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Jane. How are you? We're just so excited that you're here and your book is incredible. I love this book so much. Can we dive in? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We always love to start at the beginning. We know that you grew up in Los Angeles and you described yourself in your new book as being a tomboy. You grew up in a Hollywood family. Were you enticed early into acting? Did you ever think you would want to do anything else? What was it like growing up in your family as a child? (laughs) I was not at all enticed to want to be an actor. My father, he was the antithesis of a Hollywood star. He didn't socialize. I think once he had a party and Nat King Cole played the piano and there were stars there, but I only remember Nat King Cole. 
Oh, my God. But basically, we were a very un-Hollywood. We lived at the end of a dirt road up in the Hollywood Hills. There were hardly any other houses, and it was a dirt road, and, and that's where we lived. But you see, the thing is that my dad never brought joy home from work. I never got the sense that this was something that really fed his soul, although I think it did. Yeah. But that there was always problems. So who would want to be an actor? I mean, it, you know, it didn't appeal to me at all. My dad, after the war, because my dad was in the, in the Navy, after the Second World War, he moved to New York to do Mr. Roberts. And when it became clear that that was going to be a hit, we sold our house here and moved to Connecticut. And I went to boarding school in Troy, New York, Emma Willard, and then to Vassar for two years, and I dropped out. I'm one of those kids, you know, that never really knew who I was or what I wanted to. I was lost for a long time like a lot of kids. It's hard being young. It's so much easier being old. You know what? The older I get, I'm experiencing that as well. Yeah. No, it's true. At some point, you just realize that you don't have to please other people anymore. But also, you've been there, done that. Yeah, I I survived that. I can survive this. It's okay. It's so hard when you're young. It's like, my God, what do I need to do? Who do I need to know? What do I want to do? There's just questions looming in front of you after 50 Life gets Easier, less hostile for the majority of people, whether men, women, married, divorced, gay, straight, it tends to be true. All right. Yeah. Let's hear <laughs> it fu- for old age. The, the future <laughs> looks bright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was one quote that Deborah and I, we loved, and it was, revolution is an act of God. We are the children of revolution born to be rebels. And we both read how your activism began in the 1960s, which I honestly had no idea. And, you know, just the the body and the breadth of the work that you have done. Was this like behavior modeled for you? Um, Where did this conviction in defending justice come from? Well, I think... You know, I just said earlier that my father never brought joy home, but I I was aware that when he played parts like Tom Joad in Grapes of Wrath or the wonderful character that in 12 Angry Men or, Mm -hmm. you know, The Wrong Man, the, the films that he did where he played characters that stood up for the underdog, that those were the roles that really meant something to him. And so I watched those movies. And they had a big impact on me because I loved my dad and those were what were important to him. So I paid extra attention. I mean, Rapes of Wrath, for example, you know, where he became that character, Tom Joad, an O'Keefe, like tens of thousands, fleeing the, the dust belt of Oklahoma to find work as a farm worker in California and became a union organizer. That had a big impact on me. So the notion of justice and standing up for the underdog kind of came to me by osmosis. But I didn't really act on it until the Vietnam War. And even then, it was late when I became aware of the reality of the Vietnam War and what, you know, what, was, what we were doing there. And I learned that from American soldiers. And just like overnight, that slipped me completely from one way of living to another. I left my husband, my family. I moved back to the United States and and became an activist. That was 1969-70. Wow. You were a part of many 
social movements that changed policy. What about your approach do you think made your work effective? I was hanging with really smart people. You know, I wasn't a leader. I was, I wasn't, I was, a, you know, I was someone who had the good fortune of, of being with people who knew what they were doing and were, and were very smart and very committed. And um, I mean, I, and at one point in 1970, I, I came very close to leaving the business. I, I didn't want to act anymore because it like put up a barrier celebrity did between me and the people that I was spending time with. But a guy, um, he was a lawyer in Detroit. Ken Cockrell? Yeah, right. And when he said, I said, I think I want to leave the business. And he he said, you know, Fonda, the movement has plenty of organizers. We don't have movie stars. You not only can't leave it, you've got to pay more attention to your work and be much more intentional about your career and what you're doing. That's how you can help the movement. And and he's right, because, you know, when you're a celebrity, you have a great platform. And so it's easier to provide a mechanism through which people whose voices aren't heard can can be heard. We're like amplifiers. And so I'm I'm glad I listened to him. But it was hanging with people like that, you know, that that and then I married the best, (laughs) Tom Hayden. I was going to say, well, you know, you you were indeed a, a leader. You know, because with Tom Hayden, you you launched the Indochina peace campaign, which is, was extraordinary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was historic, although, you know, revisionist history doesn't give credit where it's due. So many, the majority of people aren't aware of the things that caused the Vietnam War to end. But 1972, the Pentagon Papers had been released we developed a very easy to read digest of them. Nixon had done a good job of dividing middle America from the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. portraying the anti-war movement as, as violent. And there was a lot of violent protests and things. We decided the people we had to reach was middle America. And that to do that, we had to look proper. <laughs> yeah. I remember cutting off Tom had a braid down his back to his butt and I had to cut that off. <laughs> Got him a tie and a jacket and you know we we looked proper and together with uh, Dan Ellsberg joined us sometimes there was a POW who traveled with us and then Holly Near the 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 singer Holly Near who was very new and young at the time and we went out on the road and we started believe it or not at the Ohio State Fair. Wow. Yeah. And I had just come back from Hanoi. And at the time, it was no big deal. And for three months, it was nonstop from day to night. 80 cities. Wow. You know, union halls, editorial boards, gymnasiums. We would speak to 20,000 people and then five people. And wow. And we used the, the Pentagon Papers to show people what the reality of the war was. We did it again the next year. By then it was Watergate, you know, so we we could talk about why. And the whole message was telling people to write their congressmen and demand that they vote against funding the war. Because we knew that the that the government in South Vietnam was only there because we were we were shoring them up. And if the funding was cut, it would go away and collapse and the war would end. And it did. And it did. And it did. And so that, that strategy of blending in 
Yeah. It was like we became Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. And, you know, we just, it was a, it was a rolling stone. We just rolled through the country and got people to, to write letters and it worked. That's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's grassroots work is what yeah. it is. Yeah. And it was interesting because people really, you know, we talked to tens of thousands of people and we, we watched people change. Holly wrote a song about it. People hadn't been aware, believe it or not. And uh, so it, it made a difference. Now we're going to take a quick break from our episode to talk about our brand partner, Rory. You've heard us talk about this brand before, and we've been working with them now for a few months, and we love it. Taking care of my skin is important to me. If you experience dullness, redness, fine lines, or breakouts, finding the right treatment can be frustrating. And now there is a simpler, smarter solution to skincare with Rory. Rory is a digital health clinic just for women that can help treat all your skincare concerns from breakouts to redness and sensitivities. Getting started is easy. Complete a free online consultation at hellorory.com slash dissenters, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed healthcare professional within 24 hours. If appropriate, they'll prescribe a personalized skincare treatment plan that works just for you with free two-day shipping. You don't even have to go to the pharmacy. Rory is there every step of the way. You always have access to your healthcare professional for questions or to make changes to your treatment. And there are no commitments, so you can cancel any time. So try it. Go to hellorory.com slash dissenters to try out your personalized treatment for just $5. That's hellorory.com slash dissenters for a free consultation and only $5 for your first order. That's hellorory.com slash dissenters. D-I-S-S-E-N-T-E-R-S. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. Now, back to our episode. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but you have said in your book that the Pentagon Papers were to the Vietnam War as the IPCC 2018 report was to the climate crisis, that, that both were irrefutable proof of lying and deceit on the part of the people who were in power. Do you think that, you know, a similar sort of campaign across America with a truncated version of what that report would have would be effective in, in this day and age? Yeah, we were going to do that. When I left Washington, D.C., after four months of doing Fire Grill Fridays every Friday, um, I then had six months to finish Grace and Frankie. Right. And then starting right about now, Annie Leonard, who's the director of Greenpeace USA, and I were going to travel the country in a bus. We were going to get an electric bus and we were going to go all over the country to bring out the climate vote and persuade people of the urgency of the crisis. And then the COVID hit. Yeah. And so now we're doing Fire Drill Fridays virtually. And what is amazing is on average, we have a quarter of a million people. And you know, one, one Friday, we had a half a million people. They watch either live or then they watch later on Facebook. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. And they, and they sign up by the thousands to volunteer. And then when we call them to, to say, okay, here's what we'd like you to do, 80% of them respond, which is unheard of. So oh it's real clear God. that this is an issue that people really care about. My head's exploding. <laughs> 
And do you feel like the work that you did in the 60s and 70s during the civil rights movement are still applicable to the activism work you're doing now? Yeah. Persistence, being on the ground, talking to people where they're at, not talking down to people, but providing them with, with, with facts and things that aren't scary. But then, you know, everything got turned on its head with COVID. Right. Yeah. There's all these things intersecting right now that are really historic. There's, there's the climate crisis. There's COVID. There's racial justice. Right. And then there's trying to save our democracy. Right. Which in November, it's all about. Of course. And so, you know, we're alive at an unprecedented moment in the history of humankind. And that's what we're trying to convey to people. We are the generation that can make a difference and save hundreds of millions of lives, depending on what we do or don't do. Well, we have to. We have to. Yeah. How does Trump compare to Nixon? Is this scarier, you think, than than what you yeah. had previously experienced? And like, you know, when you yeah. look back at Nixon, it felt like the country came back stronger. And do you think this is something that we can come back from and, and rebuild? Yeah, just like nature has came back when we were all sheltering in place. Yes, we 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 can come back from this is much more scary. You know, Nixon, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. I mean, Nixon was pretty good for the environment. He was pretty good for indigenous tribes. You know, he had a certain degree of empathy and common sense, and he was quite smart and he understood how a government is supposed to work. Now, you know, terrible things happened under him, but you were dealing with somebody who understood how government is supposed to work. We are now dealing with somebody who was raised by a man who has been described as a sociopath, right. his father, and yeah. has lost the, lost the ability of humanity. He's got no empathy. He doesn't care about anybody. He's a racist. And he could, the whole country could go to hell as far as he's concerned. So, and, you know, this is the worst possible presidency at a time when we need just the opposite because of the climate crisis. Yeah. We have we have so little time, a shrinking window of opportunity to turn it around. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on on Climate Change that you cited, right? This is much scarier. This is a true existential crisis, which wasn't the case during during the Nixon administration. But Nixon still targeted you personally, which was an extraordinary thing. That you know in nineteen. 19- 70, your famous mugshot uh, from the, the Cleveland uh, Hopkins International Airport. You were arrested on suspicion of drug trafficking and you were carrying vitamins. Did you know that the White House considered you a threat at the time? Were you scared? Do you think that something like that could happen now? I know I wasn't scared. I don't know whether it's a strength or a failing, but I don't get scared much. I knew what I was doing. I knew what needed to happen. And uh, we kind of knew. I was part of what was called COINTELPRO, where black propaganda was placed to try to harm people. It destroyed my friend, Gene Seberg, but it didn't stop me. I, you know, I just, I'm one of those people who I just, it was like, screw you. Right. Tried to do me in the more determined I became. But, you know, I've traveled, as you probably have, 
pretty much all over the world. And I'm well aware that if I had done what I had done in Argentina or Brazil or China or a number of other countries, I'd be dead. Right. Yeah, the government attacked me, but they didn't kill me. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse. And then you were put under surveillance after that? Yeah, I was pretty much under surveillance the, the whole time. Yeah. God, no big deal. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it isn't. You just assume that that's happening and you, and, you, and you deal with it. It's not, I don't know. I mean, if I was black, it would be a whole different thing. But when you're right. famous and white, they they spy on you. But right, you know, the worst they did was throw a smoke bomb into our bedroom. It, it wasn't a real bomb. If it had been, you know, look what happened to Fred Hampton and, and others, where they broke in and shot him in bed, right. or Breonna Taylor. You know, I mean, it wasn't. I consider myself fortunate. The government had a spotlight on you. How did it affect your? your relationship with Hollywood? Well, it was, Pickens were slim for a while there, <laughs> Deborah, you know, but I didn't really care. My focus was so <laughs> not on work until, until Ken Cockrell said that to me. And then I started to want to produce my own movies. And that became a whole different thing. But I didn't get a lot of job offers, but it wasn't, blacklisting it was more gray listing you know wow i've never heard that term but that that's really that's really interesting but you were you were a sex symbol through barbarella and clute do you think that being a sex symbol given given what our culture admires in terms of pretty faces and and skinny bodies. Did you think that that helped or hindered your success as an activist during those that period of time? <laughs> I'm remembering in 70, 1970, I, I was making a speech on some campus in Illinois in a theater and the theater marquee said, come here, Barbarella speak. <laughs> I think that a lot of people came to see Barbarella speak Right. And they probably came in, scratched their head saying, Jesus, she doesn't, she doesn't look very good. <laughs> <You know what? laughs> that person was Barbarella because I looked very different by then. Right. As my mugshot can attest to. But people came because I was famous. Right. And, and Barbarella was a particularly hot moment. And people came and guys came and that was, was particularly good because at that time I was recruiting guys who'd been in Vietnam soldiers to be part of the Winter Soldier investigation. It all worked out okay. I've started several organizations. Mm -hmm. One is called the uh, Georgia Campaign for Adolescent Power and Potential. That was 25 years ago and it's still going and it's very effective in Georgia, helping young people, especially around issues of of sexuality. That meant a lot to me because I had a fraught adolescence. And at the time when I started it in 95, Georgia had the highest rates of adolescent pregnancy and parenting. And I knew from the time my time spent in India and China and Russia and places like that, plus the studying that I'd done about adolescence in this country, that when a young person has a baby, it really makes the rest of their lives very challenging and 
and we wanted to address the causes of that and and that's what we do trying to empower young people very disadvantaged people i learned a lot from that experience and then i co-founded the women's media center because me and gloria steinem and robin morgan feel correctly that media is really important and that women's voices are not present even when they're talking heads on a tv show they don't make the decisions and we want to try to focus on that and make women's voices more vibrant and robust in the media, including in decision-making roles. That effort is still is ongoing, Yeah, obviously. Yeah. What is the disease to please that you referenced in the past? <laughs> the disease to please. It's an expression I learned from Oprah when she came and spoke at one of my conferences in Georgia. She talked about how, as a young girl, she had been sexually abused by a cousin and others, and what that did to her. And it created the disease to please. And having been abused myself as a child, and having had a mother who was abused as a child, and because of the study that I did because of my work in Georgia, I know that there are certain things that happen when a trauma has occurred to you that really communicates to you that there is nothing about you that is worthy other than your sexuality. And that saying no means nothing, that you will simply be overridden. Mm. That promiscuity, loss of trust, lacking the ability to have intimacy, all those things are fallouts from childhood sexual abuse. And so, you know, it just means that for me and for most such girls, it's in relation to men. It's... uh, you know, mm-hmm. the most important thing to do is to please them. Right. You know, that's why when people say, well, what is a message you would want to convey to yourself when you were a young girl? I, I would say no is a complete sentence, which comes from AA. You just don't think you have the right to say no. And it can haunt you well into your adult life. I mean, I don't think I got over it until I was in my 60s. Wow. You, you need to be popular. You need to be liked. So everything that you think would not be lovable, yeah, kind of put over here next mm-hmm. door. Mm-hmm. And so you go through life like a double exposure. There's the you that presents to the world, mm-hmm. but it's empty. Everything that's complicated and interesting about you has been moved over here. And then the challenge in your life is to bring the two back together and become whole. Right. And that doesn't just happen. That takes intention and work. And it's taken me many, 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 many years. I cannot tell you how much I deeply connect with what you just said. Because that 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 has been too. my my entire life struggle. And only in the last two years where I've really leaned into my own activism that I've been able to say and, and acknowledge like what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are and let go of caring about what people think of me and trying to live up to what people want me to be and what will make my family happy or my friends proud of me. And it's really, I mean, as you said, it just reconciling the two and being okay with the consequences of them is, is so overwhelming. It's really, really hard. And it can also lead as it did with me to eating disorders Mm-hmm. which then compounds the problem of not being in your body. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so the disease to, to please is, a, it's true for many, 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 and one out of four in this country. I relate to it as well. Definitely being in this, this industry, 
I absolutely have recognized that everything that makes me complicated is inconvenient. Yeah. Right? You don't want to be inconvenient. That's a good right. word. I like that. Yeah. 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 It's all about, you know, we have work to be done. We have, there's, a, there's money, there's time. And, you know, anything that is going to make things more complicated, i.e. your feelings, is trouble. And so it's communicated to us uh, in many different ways that we should stay silent. And being silent is, is being a team player. Yeah. And that has been something that, that I have been really working hard and trying to dismantle that idea that you have to be silent in order to be a team player. But it goes back to patriarchy. We try to make this an opportunity for people to ask what others might deem like dumb questions yeah. or things that should be obvious, but they really don't understand. Because I think a lot of people, and, and, I, and I actually read that, this quote from you, but you know, a lot of people think feminism is just being anti-men, but it obviously is not. And this idea of the patriarchy is so daunting to them and makes them very defensive. Um, and I'd love to hear from you yeah. what it actually means. Patriarchy is the social paradigm that has governed the majority of human civilization for tens of thousands. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of agriculture, which was the beginning of private property. This is mine. So then the accumulation of private property made you more and more powerful. And the man was the one that had the property. Mm -hmm. And it became a hierarchical system of social and political governance. What feminism means is moving from the hierarchy, the pyramid, to circle, where there is no top, no bottom, no beginning, no end. Everyone is sitting across from each other on the same level. If you don't hear from women and get their perspective on things, you're missing half the story. And patriarchy combined with capitalism becomes late stage capitalism becomes really, really toxic. And here's the thing. Take this country, for example. Imagine yourself. You're a white man. You're used to having things kind of your way. All the th people that are important look like you. And suddenly you're seeing that there's a new majority in this country. And they're black and they're mm -hmm. brown mm -hmm. and they're immigrants. And they're these young whippersnapper kids. Yep. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's fury that comes from fear. And right. you know yeah. what they say. There's nothing more dangerous than a wounded beast. We are dealing now. Yeah a flailing beast that is, and there's nothing more dangerous. And Donald Trump is just one manifestation of it. Yeah. But he is a quintessential wow. manifestation of patriarchy. Let's talk about your book. <laughs> okay. I love this book. I just, we do too. Just talk about the book. Please. When I first was it was a year ago labor day when i got the idea to move to dc and and do what became fire drill fridays i didn't know if it was going to work i certainly never thought of ever writing a book about it or anything like that but i thought mm -hmm. it's a way to use my celebrity to heighten people's awareness of the urgency of the climate crisis and we decided that there'd be the rally then there would be civil disobedience which meant mm -hmm. risking arrest it's a step up for people asking them to do that. 
and we didn't know if it was going to work. Given the crisis, it has to become the new normal, but it was like, what's going to happen? And what happened was people from all over the country began coming, and they would come once, they would come twice, they would come three times. We had 19 people arrested the first day and 340 the last day. And it became very, very clear to me and to Annie Leonard of Greenpeace that we had tapped into something. We had tapped into people's need to take the next step. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's the young people have the Sunrise Movement and the Fridays for Future and, you know, Gen X has Extension Rebellion. Fire Grill Fridays is for older folks. And it was mostly women who showed up and mostly older women. And it was clear that we were growing a movement. Yeah. And then we were asking people to sign up. And we had 17,000 people that signed up before the end to, to take Fire Drill Fridays to where they live, to their home communities. And then so we said, well, maybe I should write a book about it. And so I decided that that would be a good idea to have like... E- from the very beginning, I wanted Fire Grill Fridays to focus on a different aspect of the climate crisis every week because I, was, I didn't think that people knew enough about the yeah. interconnections of all these things. And, um, Absolutely. And I sure learned a lot. And, you know, the night before the rally on Thursday night, every week we would have a teach-in. And people from all over the world, Serbia, Croatia, Japan, Australia, I mean, it was just unbelievable. They were watching these things. And, um, well, you had extraordinary experts participate in those, those teachings. Yeah. And what I loved was, you know, I got celebrities to come and the celebrities would introduce the experts. And so we brought to the stage voices that people don't hear frontline voices, young voices, amazing voices. I just, it was it was so beautiful, and the 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 use of celebrity that way made me very happy. And the famous people that came felt really, you know, really really good about it. I just have to say quickly, I want to thank you for inviting me. I wanted so desperately to come and get arrested with you. Um, I was filming Will and Grace, but um, the next time you want someone to get arrested, call me and I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you. That would mean the world to me. Thank you, Deborah. So the book is called What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action. And your opening chapter is called The Wake Up Call, which I love the title of because every incredible activist and leader that we have interviewed in this podcast started, you know, with had some version of a wake up call. And and that story that you shared in Big Sur was was so impactful because it really highlights how so many times these callings that we get don't start because we have a vision of some huge foundation. It's because we have this like need to stand up to an injustice or or give back or change something. And so do you mind sharing that story of your wake-up call? Yeah. Well, f- for a good long time prior to that weekend in Big Sur with my pals, Catherine Keener and Rosanna Arquette, um, I had been really depressed You know, I'd gotten an electric car, I was cutting out meat and fish, and I was getting rid of single-use plastics. I was doing all the individual personal things to reduce my carbon footprint, but I knew 
that that wasn't enough. It's a good place to start, but it's no place to stop. It's just the beginning. And I didn't know what to do. So we drove up and stayed at Rosanna's place in Big Sur. And the first night I had just been sent a galleys, which is an advanced copy of Naomi Klein's book called Mm -hmm. On Fire, A Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And I love Naomi Klein's books and all her books have a big effect on me. I didn't know if this one would or not, but I sat down, I started reading it. And within a quarter of the book, I started to shake. Wow. I knew what I had to do. There were three things about the book. One was the way she talked about Greta Thunberg. I knew about Greta Thunberg, the Swedish student who started, um, you know, her climate strike every Friday at front of the Mm -hmm. Swedish parliament. And I knew she was on the spectrum of autism. She has Asperger's. But nobody until Naomi had explained what the Asperger's had to do with her climate work. When you have Asperger's, you have a laser focus. You don't, like most of us, worry about what people are going to think or read an article about a starving polar bear and then 10 minutes later you're tweeting about a pair of pants you bought. She's a science nerd and so she had this laser focus on the science. And when the IPCC came out in 2018 saying we have a decade, well at that time it was 12 years, to reduce our fossil fuel emissions by half and then phase out entirely by mid-century. And if we don't, for every quarter of a degree of heating, hundreds of millions of people will die. This has never happened. And this, this, we're, we're approaching the tipping point. And at first, she didn't believe it because she said, if this is true, nobody would be going about life in a normal way. And when she realized it was true, it so traumatized her, she stopped eating. Wow. When I read that, it was so visceral. I realized that what she saw was the truth. That if that little girl who was a science nerd with Asperger's suddenly realized this is tr- what the science are saying is true and nobody is behaving appropriately, she totally shut down. It affected her growth. And so that just hit me like a thunderclap. Number two, the science. Naomi explained the science in a very clear way, which I just kind of summarized just now. And then three was the way she wrote about the Green New Deal. Because I'm one of those people when Alexandria Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Mar- Senator Ed Markey um, announced it at a press conference a year and a half ago. I thought, oh God, why don't they just stick to climate? Why are they talking about justice and fairness and all of that in the context of climate. Mm-hmm. Naomi helped me understand why that is absolutely essential. And it gave a vision of what we're working towards. And I stood up from reading the book and I said to Rosanna and to Catherine, I'm going to move to DC for a year and I'm going to protest. And then when we drove back after the Labor Day weekend, I I went immediately to the office of Ted Sarandos, the head of Netflix. And I asked him to give me a year hiatus. He's a good guy, but he couldn't do it because he signed (laughs) all these contracts. So I figured, okay, I got four months. So I called up Greenpeace and the rest is is history. But that's that's how it happened. The thing that just struck me was 
you saw this problem and you said, okay, I am, I am lucky enough that I'm able to carve this time out and I'm able to afford to, to pick up and to move somewhere. But then you just reached out to all of the experts and leaders and said, I want to help. Tell me what to do. And the fact that that was your first step and then you were able to create this, this powerful, consequential movement, it really is about everything that, that Mandana and I are talking about is, is just taking that, that one step. And, you know, you were smart enough to say, I'm not an expert, so I'm going to find the experts, you know, to use me in the most effectual way. Yeah. Yeah. Something really, really struck me. You talked about in your book, you talked about the importance of accountability when doing this work. It was very, very important to you that when you came to DC and you decided to create this Fire Drill Friday campaign, that you didn't just go and do it with the people that you had partnered with, that you felt an obligation to reach out to the young climate activists and essentially to get their blessing and to learn what they were hoping to do. And and essentially you were being inclusive. And can you talk a little bit about, about how it serves the greater movement by reaching out and being inclusive? Well, can you, can you imagine this aging movie star bops into Hollywood and starts doing an action on Friday when all the young people are having actions, and I had never contacted them, or none of the other movement leaders who were in D.C. had heard about it or knew about it or had been contacted, I would have been so attacked. Mm. And then what would have happened? I would have been doing this, and and they'd be coming at me, but instead... We brought them all in. And, you know, I, I remember my first meeting with all of the climate, the young ones. God, they're smart. And we've remained friends. And, and you know, and I, it was a f- hours long. And, and um, I wanted to be sure that it was okay with them. And it was. We solved a lot of kind of tactical issues together. And, you know, what should it look like and who should speak and which of them and all of that. And then... We had you know meetings with the you know Friends of the Earth and Oil Change International and all of the major the brave environmental organizations the ones that like big actions they mm-hmm. don't all all of them were part of the the group that helped make the decisions about about Fire Drill Fridays and and that's why there was such movement buy-in it was worth every moment that we spent talking to all these people. I mean, the very first arrest, there were all of these movement leaders. There were, I think, 16 people. Saw all the movement leaders. It made all the difference in the world. And the media took note, as you wrote in your book. The the media noted that that what was special about your Friday action was they looked and they saw people of every generation, every color, every gender— and that it was an anomaly for the media to see it, to see everybody represented there. Yeah, it meant the world to me. I mean, I guess at this point, what what do you hope for Fire Drill Fridays? Like, where do you envision this going? And 
And as you think about, you know, when you speak about this issue, it it's so it seems so clear the critical importance of this moment and this cause. And yet somehow it gets politicized, which to me seems so counterintuitive, obviously, because it's science. And science, at least when I was growing up, was not something you ever argued with. You were like, oh, NASA said that. They're a lot smarter than me. They're rocket scientists. I believe them. And and now we live in a very different universe where people don't accept facts, um, particularly when they're science-based. How do you counter that component of all of this? How do you combat misinformation yeah. and disinformation? How do you how do you continue to push out this facts and bring people over to this yeah. side? Well, one thing that's important for for everyone to know is that really important research has been done that shows that if you win over 3.5% of a population, you win. 3.5%, you win. Wow. No cause has ever lost that one over 3.5%. That means 3.5% of the population willing to protest, willing to take action. Wow. In the United States, that means 11 million. That is doable. Okay. Yeah. So people who refuse to listen to science, and there ain't a lot of them, um, you don't waste your time yeah. with. Right. Our focus was on the people who realize there's a crisis, who accept that it's human made, but haven't done anything yet. Mm-hmm. That, that was who we were targeting. And most of the people who came to DC had never engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience before. And, you know, nothing historic has ever happened without nonviolent civil disobedience. That's how things change. In the 30s, the, the, the most comparable period of American history to this is the Great Depression, when there were millions of people yeah. that were really suffering and in huge trouble and starving and so forth. And it needed huge, brave, bold action on the part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And there were millions of people in the streets and they were demanding this and this and this. And he said to them, I agree with you now, go out and make me do it. And I love that. That's, that's what is wow. needed. The first part of your question was, what is the future? Where are you going? Well, between now and November, we're starting to focus our fire drill Fridays on voter registration, voter suppression, and what we do about it. Yeah. Starting, starting tomorrow, that's what we're going <gasps> to talk about. And we have literally tens of thousands of people who've signed up as volunteers, all from their home, who will be doing the job of researching where is the climate vote, what are the phone numbers, how to get them out. I mean, it's possible now to get such incredible depth of information about people. Yeah. We have a whole cadre of people that will be texting, others that will be calling, others that will be sending postcards and so mm -hmm. forth. When the election happens, and please God, it will be the Democrat, we're going to have to mount a huge campaign to pressure him because he's not going to do what's necessary without tremendous pressure. You know, when, during the time that I was in D.C., I was asked by the Senate Task Force on Climate Change to speak to them about what I was doing, which uh -huh. I did. At one point, I asked them, 
am I doing the right thing? Do you think that this is what's important? And they said, yes, you're building an army. Make it big. We need that pressure. It's always a, a thing about pressure from the inside and then pressure from the outside. And they both have to be coordinated. Right. So the November election is just the beginning. We then have to force the new president and Congress to do the right thing and do, to do it fast. So that's that's where we're going and then hold their feet to the fire. You know, the big problem, a lot of the Obama, Clinton, those those administrations is we sort of thought, well, they're good guys, you know. So we sat back and watched like yeah. it was a movie. We, we can never do that again. We have to continue to force them to do what's right because they're not going to do it on their own. There's too much pressure. You see, for years, the environmental and climate movement has talked about windmills and solar panels and conservation and so forth. But the real problem is fossil fuel. And people didn't talk about right. fossil fuel because it's too scary because our whole economy is based on fossil fuels. So to say we have to do away with fossil fuels is a big deal. And it, you know, it threatens a whole lot of people. But that's what has to happen. Reading about your, your commitment to activism, the way you write about it, there's almost a romantic, poetic nature to how you, you write about it and speak about it. Saving the world is your mental health. You said it helped you overcome depression. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Um, well, I come from a long line of depressed people. So depression is sort of like Eeyore. It hangs over me all the time. And what I have found is that the best antidote for it is activism. That when I put my body on the line for something that is important to me, the depression lifts. And I've found a lot of other people feel the same way. Yeah. I've struggled with uh, depression and anxiety for most of my life. And, and I, when, I, when I read that, it, it spoke to me. Yeah. What can we do? What can people do? People text Jane. Text Jane to 877-877 if you want to get involved with Fire Drill Fridays. I cannot tell you the team of organizers that are Fire Drill Fridays. They're the best organizers that I've ever met. They will train you to do what's needed. They will give you what you need to do to make a difference. And what are like, you know, we read about how you have changed your consumption habits, the famous red coat, which you said would be your last purchase. I think for everyone who feels like sometimes caring about the climate is insurmountable. I don't, I, there's no way I can do all of the things that are on every single list, but what are some things that people can do to at least begin somewhere? Well, it's good to do the personal things because it makes you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to be talking about stopping the climate crisis if you're driving 100 miles every day in a car that's not electric. So getting rid of single-use plastics, and it's not hard to do now. There are all kinds of ways of, you know, of alternatives to yeah. use. If you can afford it, getting an electric car, fighting to have electric vehicles more mm -hmm. accessible to people who aren't um, middle class, putting solar panels on your house if you can, fighting to make solar panels inexpensive. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think the, the, the personal things are important, but it's the on, that's the on-ramp. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. And then being part of organizations, Greenpeace, Fire Drill Fridays, Sunrise, 
Extinction Rebellion, Zero Hour. There's so many out there now, depending on who you are and what your age is. And I was just dumbstruck when I read in your book about single-use plastic and how it's what's left over, single-use plastic. It's the waste of fossil fuels. Yes. Can yeah. you talk about that? I had no idea. And and all of a sudden, I, I understood for the first time how it all connected in a way. And yeah. I, please, please explain it to our listeners. Well, when fossil fuel is um, refined and burned, the process leaves a lot of waste. And they discovered that they can harness this waste and transport it somewhere else where it is then turned into plastic. And so there's toxins released every single step of the way in the beginning, during the transportation, during the transformation into plastic, and then the plastic itself, which has become a scourge of humanity. And the air we breathe everywhere, the Arctic ice, I mean, it's everywhere. I did not know that either, Deborah, until Fire Drill Friday. That was a big aha for me. Yeah. It's stunning. It's really stunning. And I think that, you know, I live in New York City and so much of the culture and life in New York City is about, you know, going in, grabbing food, you, you know, like a, a brown bag thing and they throw in the plastic and they throw in the, you know, the napkins and you go and it's so easy just not to even think about it. You know, it just seems like, oh, yeah, that always comes with our Chinese takeout. That always comes with. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We have to stop. It has to stop. Like every every school, you know, no plastic. You have to have, you know, metal. You know, it's just (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, you can get metal straws and and spoons and wood and carry these guys. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, they're great. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, recently, because, you know, the fossil fuel companies, they see the writing on the wall. That's why um, last year Exxon said in big, bold headlines, plastics are our future. No. Yeah, that they know that that's what they have to start concentrating on, more and more plastic. And, of course, mm-hmm. COVID has made it kind oh of, you know, using God. plastic. We like to end with some fun questions. Sure. Can we do that? <laughs> okay. Where do you keep all your Oscars? Ah. <laughs> they're on a book. Sh- they're on a shelf in my family room. <laughs> Let me tell you something, though. Let me just tell you something. For years, I never put any of my awards out. Some of them I've even lost. But then I married Ted Turner. And the first time I walked in, you know, he was, he won the America's Cup. He's yes. Captain America. Yeah. I walked into his office, which was the size of a football field, and the walls were lined with all of his trophies. And I thought to myself, well, damn it. <laughs> you know, it's a woman thing. Yeah. You know, and, put, and so I started to display my trophies. <laughs> Fantastic. Do you still have your leg warmers from your aerobic days? No. I wish I <laughs> I wish I did. I'd, I'd, I'd auction them off, but I don't. I, by the way, I did all of your aerobic tapes in the 80s. I did them. I did every single one of them. Do you still do aerobics? I walk. Jane Fonda, you are a hero. You really are. Thanks. You are, you are extraordinary. You're a national hero. Thank you. And you are a hero to women. And uh, 
you know, Mandana and I are so, so grateful to have had this time with you and to be able to share your life and your wisdom and your passion and uh, your new book and your Fire Drill Fridays and everything with our, our listeners. It's, it's, been, it's been an honor. It's been an honor for me too, Deborah and Mandala. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. (laughs) How cool is that? How cool is that? (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week for our special episode with Dr. Edith Eva Eager, the healing survivor. This episode is incredibly important to us and a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear and share the story of a Holocaust survivor and learn how her life and her learnings are a gift to us all. So please make sure to tune in next week. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.